navigate the journey to becoming a great lawyer with expert guidance on topics that range from trial skills to corner office management. Here you will learn how to tap into your potential for legal greatness. I'm Andrew Smiley, and this is The Mentor, ESQ. Today on The Mentor ESQ, I'm very excited to introduce you to my mentor, to uh, the person who started all of this, and that's Guy Smiley. Guy Smiley is my father. He is my law partner. He's my tennis buddy, uh, my all-around friend, and the person who I've learned so much about life from as far as being a, a man, a son, a husband a father myself, and being a law partner, and being a lawyer. And that's what we're going to talk about today. And I thought it would be great to have you hear from the person that I've learned so much from, so that you can learn about his experience practicing law for uh, over 50 years here in New York City. My father guy is 81 years old with impeccable credentials that he'll fill you in on. Welcome to the studio today, Dad. Hey, it's my pleasure to be here, Andrew. I, I've been looking forward to this day, and here we are. We are here, and you know we've been partners now for almost 20 years, and it's just, you know, we've learned so much working together, and I've learned so much from practicing law with you, and I've seen so much change just in my 20 plus years of practicing law that I can't imagine the changes that you've seen. And I thought maybe you can you know, share with us, first of all, your background. How is it that you got into this field that you became a trial lawyer? It's a little bit by accident. Um, upon graduating from high school, I, uh, I went to Cornell where I started off in the engineering school. I didn't particularly care for that, so after two years of struggling through engineering, I switched my major to liberal arts. And when I was graduating, about to graduate, I had a, a background in psychology. That's, that was my uh, major. So I said to myself, what am I going to do now? <laughs> and part of me had always had a, an inkling or a predilection toward law. I even remember back in high school, we had a sort of a moot court class, and that always fascinated me. And I think it was stuck in the back of my mind. So as I neared the graduation time in college, I said to myself, I would like to see what practicing law might be about. And so I applied to law school, took the LSATs, and apparently I did okay because I was accepted by a Columbia University School of Law. So I started classes with a lot of trepidation, but I have to tell you, from the first moment I stepped into the classroom in law school, I just fell in love with it. I am one of the few people who really loved law school even more than undergraduate college. What do you think it was about law school that really got you excited? Well, I think it was the, the, the use of your mind. I mean, law requires a great deal of logic and logical thinking, and that seems to be my forte. So I love that. I love the challenge. I love the mental challenge of, you know, figuring out solutions to problems. That's in essence what, what lawyers do. They, they assemble the facts and then find the solution and point those facts in the, in the direction of where they want to go on behalf of their client. So it was great. Law school had the Socratic method 
And that method is whereby the professor throws out a problem and then asks various students to comment on the problem and give their solutions or their thoughts about it. So it was the give and take and the camaraderie of my fellow students. Columbia's class was only 300 people as compared to 1,500 people at Cornell where I did my undergraduate work. So I liked the intimacy of it. I liked the give and take of it and the, the entire ambience. Tell us about your first job at a law school. Well, I'm sure those of you out there who are practicing realize that law school is, is pretty good for a foundation, but does not prepare you for the real world. I decided that I wanted to be a lawyer who would specialize in trial work, courtroom work, because I felt that's where my strengths lay. Because in college, I had a bit of a theatrical flair. I was in musical comedy, and I've always enjoyed, I guess, performing is a, is a good way to put it. So you have basically two choices if you want to do courtroom work in the field of law. One would be criminal, either as a prosecutor or a defense counsel. And the other area, which would be in civil law, would be personal injury or negligence. Those are the two areas where you really are in the courtroom a great deal amount of time, as opposed to, say, a real estate practice or a taxation practice or an estate practice where you're really doing office work. So I spent one summer in the DA's office as a volunteer and realized that I did not care for criminal law. So what was left was negligence or personal injury litigation. I... um, discovered who the top names in personal injury litigation were in New York City at the time I graduated, which is in 1963. And I found five names, and I sent resumes to all five law firms, and all five law firms responded to my great surprise and pleasure. And I interviewed with all of them, and I ended up working and joining the firm of a fellow who was a legendary practitioner in New York City. Now, you have to be of a certain age for that name to mean anything to you. But for some of you old-timers like myself out there, the name of that attorney was Harry Lipsick. He was a, a Damon Runyon-esque type character. He was about five feet tall with a bit of a Napoleonic complex, but he was an outstanding trial lawyer. Everything I learned about trying cases was from Harry Lipsig and working for him. It was like a postgraduate course after law school. Was he your mentor? He was my mentor. And to this day, I still think about him. I even sometimes have dreams about him. He probably was the most influential person in my life. Was that more than just the law as well? Well, it was his attitude. His attitude was, you can do anything if you put your mind to it. And what he instilled in me was confidence. He said, you know, there's an expression these days, uh, fake it till you make it. He was the personification of that. He just went into any situation with confidence, even if he was punting. And he taught that to me, and it's, it's taken me a long way. I don't punt that much anymore because uh, after 54 years of practice, you pretty much know what's happening. But I tell you, in the beginning as a young lawyer, it was critically important to have that ability and to instill that confidence uh, in yourself. 
Can you give us any examples of things that stand out in your mind from your time with Harry Lipsick and one of the lessons you may have learned from him that has really stuck with you? <laughs> well, the story I like to tell is my very first trial with, with Harry Lipsick. I second seated him at a trial. And I won't bore you with all the details, but basically it was a will contest, not a personal injury case, strangely enough, but it was a will contest. And one of the issues became whether or not the signature on the will was authentic. So Mr. Lipsick says to me, he says, we need a handwriting expert, go find one and be ready with questions for me to cross-examine their handwriting expert with. So being young and full of energy, I researched it. I found a great handwriting expert, and that handwriting expert sat down with me and gave me the questions to ask the opposing expert so that I would be knowledgeable. And I prepared a list of all the questions, and I presented the uh, preparation of our witness, and I explained all this to Harry Lipsick. So uh, we're back in the courtroom. And our witness testified, you know, very proficiently. And then it was time for the other witness to testify. And he or she, I don't remember who it was, uh, did a pretty good job. And the judge says, uh, Mr. Lipsig, you may cross-examine. <laughs> Suddenly, Lipsig turns to me, puts his arm around my shoulder, looks up at the court and says, Your Honor, my colleague, Mr. Smiley, will do the cross-examination. <laughs> well, talk about throwing you into the swimming pool, right? I almost wet my pants, to be honest. But I tell you, I got up there, and I did a job on cross-examination, and he told me later how proud he was of me. And boy, if that doesn't give you a sense of confidence, nothing will. So that's my first war story with Harry Lipsing. And from then on, he actually gave me cases to try. How did you learn how to try a case? Well, uh, basically, I sat with him through a few trials, which was also helpful. But in those days, the Practicing Law Institute was an organization that had literature for lawyers in practice. And they had a monograph on how to try a personal injury case. Actually, it was a series of monographs. The first monograph was how to pick a jury, the second one was opening statements to the jury, then direct examination, cross-examination, and summation. Basically, as the trial progressed, each night before the trial for the next day, I would read the monograph, and fortunately, I was a quick learner. But that's how I got through my very first case. What is a monograph? I'm sorry to say I don't even know what that oh, is. Okay, a monograph is like a little pamphlet. It was a, like a almost like a five-by-seven little booklet not more than maybe 10 pages in it. And it's called a monograph because mono meaning one, it dealt with one subject. Like in other words, there was a little monograph on just on opening statements. It told you, you know, how to make an opening statement. The other, then there was the monograph, as I said earlier, about how to conduct a direct examination. That's all the little booklet did was talk about that. So it was easy for me as the trial progressed when it got to the point where I finished direct examination and had to prepare for cross-examination. I read that monograph and I got through it. Being my mentor was a natural thing for you because you're my father. So I was always learning just from observation and all the time we spent together from me being a child all the way growing up working in your law firm as I did throughout high school, law school, college, summers. But 
is there anything that you actually purposely was aware of in my journey of being a lawyer that you wanted to make sure that you instilled in me, lessons that you wanted to share with me, parts about being a lawyer that uh, you thought it would be really important that I learned and the way that I would handle myself as a lawyer in certain, certain situations, anything specific that you went out of your way to make sure you passed along to me as a result of what you have learned in your years in the law? Well, first of all, I knew you were very bright. And I also knew that you were a natural for, for trial work. You just have a presence about you, which is commanding and which is, you know, really significant when you are in a courtroom conducting a trial. So I wanted to hone those skills, which were natural to you to begin with. I also wanted to instill the work ethic, which you quickly absorbed. And that is, as the saying goes, you can overtry a case. I think the O.J. Simpson trial was a perfect example of that. You gave too much to the jury. They really were getting confused. So you can overtry a case, make it too complicated, make it too difficult for the jury to understand. However, you can never overprepare a case. And that was one of the things I wanted you to learn from the get-go, how to prepare a case, even to the point where you felt it was overkill, because you never know what can happen in a trial, and you want to be prepared for every eventuality. As I've said to people when I lecture, and I'm, I'm sure I've said this to you many times, a trial is like a chess game. You have to think three or four steps ahead, that if I do this, what is the reaction going to be? And then how will I react to that reaction? So in a sense, it's a chess game and you have to plan ahead and you have to think ahead. And the way to do that is by so preparing your case that you really can quickly change tactics midstream if necessary, because you're so knowledgeable of the facts and of the, the rules of evidence and all the components that go into having a successful trial experience. What about how you handle yourself as a lawyer amongst your colleagues or your adversaries? Have you learned through your career a certain way that I've observed you practice law in the best way to handle yourself as a lawyer? Well, I think credibility and reputation are the sine qua non of being a good lawyer. If your reputation isn't good, you'll never survive. If your credibility is not intact, you'll never survive. That's true in your interaction with your clients, with your interaction with your adversaries, your interaction with the court, the judge, and certainly with the jury. If, if you have no credibility with a jury, it's a lost cause, no matter how great your case may appear to be. So those are the, the special qualities that you need. Those are qualities in life, actually, to conduct your life that way, but especially in your practice. I feel that how you handle yourself as a person in life really is so intertwined with how you handle yourself as a lawyer. I agree with that statement. I really do. Especially in the field we practice. Personal injury deals with humanity. It deals with people who are suffering and people who are under stress, great emotional stress, a lot of physical stress. And being a concerned, empathetic person 
makes you not only a good human being, but makes you a really good lawyer in the field of personal injury. You relate to what's going on with your client, and somehow you are able to project that empathy of your client that you feel you can project that to the jury so the jury feels it. One of the things I've always grappled with 20 plus years now is that we are in a profession, specifically in personal injury litigation, that's very adversarial. It's always the plaintiff that we represent versus the defendant. There's a lawyer on the other side or a law firm always pushing back against us. Uh, There's always a battle, always a fight. Uh, We're trying to get things. They're trying to keep things from us. Sometimes we encounter lawyers that are not pleasant to deal with as adversaries, and it can be quite stressful. How have you learned, if you have learned, to manage the adversarial nature of what we do as lawyers? Well, first of all, as a trial lawyer in what we do, we have to accept the reality that this is an adversarial process by, by nature. The theory is that by having strong advocates on both sides, the ultimate truth will come out and the jury will make the decision as to what they believe the truth to be. So by its nature, it's, it's got to be adversarial. Now, given that, one does not have to be a nasty adversary and, and have a, a bitter relationship with your opponent, your, your opposing lawyer. There are many times, at least when I was starting, where I developed relationships with the lawyers where we would you know, beat each other's brains out, so to speak, in the courtroom. But when the day ended, when the courtroom day ended, we'd go out and have a drink or we would chat about other things. So you can have a respectful adversarial relationship, which doesn't have to be mean and nasty. However, I've noticed over the years that some of this gentlemanliness or womanliness, to be politically correct, uh, has gone out of the profession. Uh, people have seen each side as their adversary, both in and out of the courtroom. And that has not a good, a good factor. It creates unnecessary stress, and there's no need for it. You can respect each other and realize that you are doing a job for your client, but not make it personal and make it mean and make it difficult. I've noticed that too. Um, I've, growing up, seeing how you've interacted with other lawyers who would be of your age now in their early 80s or in their 70s, even back when you guys were in your 50s and 60s, you had a collegial nature about you dealing with the other lawyers and your handshake and your word was your bond. And you didn't need to write up a stipulation. If you said you'd do it, you'd do it and you had each other's back, and you respected the position you were in. And I've noticed, and I've always tried because of my observations of you and how you've mentored me, that's how I practice law. And 20 plus years now, my reputation is such that I'm known to be an honest broker, so to speak. And if I say something, I'll stick to it. And that helps when I'm starting a case and I'm speaking with my adversary, I say, check me out. You'll hear that, you know, I'm a straight shooter. And, but I do see that the younger generation, by younger, I mean, you know, newer graduates, people that have been new to the practice of law, only out for a few years or so, that feel that they had to be adversarial. And maybe they don't have the confidence that they can get along with their adversary. But I have seen that. And I'm wondering, how do we as mentors to new lawyers 
How do you teach that? And how does a young lawyer learn that if that young lawyer doesn't have someone like us or someone to mentor them and tell them it's okay to be friendly with your adversary? How does it, how, how can we change the system, if, if at all? Well, I think you just have to do exactly what you said. Speak to them and explain to them about the ethics, the collegiality, that uh, you can be a forceful advocate in the courtroom, but it doesn't mean you have to get down and dirty and disparage your opponent or get a hate on for your opponent or become vicious or bitter. The law, you know, has lost a lot of its collegiality as it was when I was growing up. Why? I don't know. Today, things are more stressful. I think life is more stressful today. Between internet and immediate responses to things, people are under a great deal of pressure. In the old days, if you wrote a letter to your adversary or sent your adversary some papers, you know, you could relax a few days because till they got the mail, till they responded to you by mail, you know, things would be a little bit in limbo and you could cool off. Now you get an instant response. You send somebody an email, you get an email back, you know, 10 seconds later, the stress level goes up. I think people are just stressed out. Also, I think today with advertising, and that's a whole other subject about legal and professional advertising, but I think advertising has created a lot more competition. And somewhere, some people, especially trial lawyers, believe you have to be competitive and you have to be aggressive and nasty to beat your competition, which is wrong as a basic thought, but it's a fallacy, but it's carried out because people sort of start in that manner and never get out of that groove. They need somebody to sit down with them and say, look, we understand that you want to win your case. We understand this is an adversarial procedure. But you don't have to stress out. You don't have to torture or, or kill your adversary. Your adversary is doing his or her job just as you are. It should not be on a personal level. Growing up, I would observe when you would be on trial in a high stressful situation, you'd come home sometimes late at night. You set up in a room in our house, sort of your war room where you would have all your files spread out and you would go in there and and mom would always tell us, leave dad alone. He's preparing for trial. Give him some peace and quiet so he can focus on his work. And we observed how you would you would get into that mode of being focused and being on trial. But when you weren't in that mode, you were always around. We had breakfast together all the time. And most times you were home for dinner. How did you find and how have you continued to find a balance between having a successful law practice and being a successful lawyer and representing your clients vigorously, and also being able to give the time to, to your wife, my mother, and to our family and to me in, in a good balance. Well, this is also something I have tried to instill in other lawyers, younger lawyers, and especially you, and you've, you've followed in my footsteps in that regard. And I think it has to do with quality of life. To have a good quality of life and to be successful in a profession such, such as the law profession, you need to balance. You have to create a proper balance between the two. You know, it's the old expression about nobody remembers your last case when you're dead in the cemetery, but your family remembers who you are. The balance is something you have to train yourself to do. Let me give you an example. When you're in the middle of a trial, of course, 
all your focus has to be on that trial, and you have to prepare during the evening for the next day's session. Now, there are two ways that I found I could prepare. One is that I would come back to the office from court, and I'd say come back around 5 o'clock. I could stay in the office till 8 or 9 o'clock working on the next day's matters to be prepared for the next day, then get on a train, come home, and maybe have a bite to eat at 10 o'clock at night, go to bed, and then get up the next day and go back to court. Or what I preferred to do and which I was able to do was leave the office, say, at 6, bring my bag of work home with me, get home in time to have dinner with my family, which was very important to me. Talk about the day's events. I know you and and my daughter, your sister, uh, would be very interested in the trial, so I'd talk about the trial. And frankly, sometimes you guys would bring up some important points that I did not see, which I then incorporated into my case the next day. So we'd finish dinner, maybe 7, 7.30, and I'd spend three hours not in the office preparing, but in the home after having had dinner with you. So I got the time in that I needed. It was a question of where I did what. What I did is instead of staying in the office working and then getting home late and missing dinner, I reversed it. I left the office earlier, well, relatively early, came home in time to have dinner. Then after dinner, we weren't schmoozing or watching TV after dinner. I would go into this room, seal myself off, and do the preparation work. Instead of preparing it in the office and then coming home, I came home, had dinner, and then did the preparation. So this I stumbled on as a way of my own behavior in preparing during trial. And it worked great because it accomplished a number of things. Frankly, it gave me a break from the, from the courtroom day. I was able to spend time with my family, which is very important. And then I had that break, which enabled me to refocus after dinner on my case and prepare for the next day. Dad, what's your definition of a great lawyer or a successful lawyer? That's a hard one because different people have different definitions of a great lawyer. I'm just trying to think of some names of people who they say are great lawyers. You know, there are great lawyers, so-called by reputation. But what you don't know is what goes on behind the scenes. There are lawyers I know who I will not mention by name who have wonderful careers. They're big firms there. Some of them are household names. But if you look into their family life, in all frankness, it sucks because they spend no time with their family. I knew a lawyer who spent his whole career working and never spending time with his family. And I had lunch with him when he was in his mid-60s. And I said to him, boy, I'm so excited. I'm having a grandchild. And he says, oh, I'm excited too. I'm having a child. I said, really? At your age? And he said to me, yeah. He says, I, you know, I'm divorced, but I recently married. And I never spent time with my family or my kids. But now that I'm getting, now that I've been remarried and have a new kid, I can make up for what I missed growing up, so to speak. And I thought to myself, my God, what a sad story that is. Here's somebody who spent all his life on his career, 
wasted all that time in his youth and in his children's youth and now thinks he can make up for it later on in life. You can't. There's no such thing as a do-over when it comes to growing a family. So the answer is balance. I would say on an objective scale, I've been a successful lawyer. I've done well for clients. I've raised, I believe, a wonderful family. have the honor and privilege of having a son who's perhaps more successful than I am even, maybe even more well-known. To put in a plug, you've been the past president of the New York City Trial Lawyers Alliance, president of the New York State Academy of Trial Lawyers. I never reached those levels, and you have already at a young age. So that makes me very proud and says to myself, I'm successful. That would be my definition. Well, thank you for those words, and thanks for sharing that with us, and thanks for sharing your time with us. You have your wealth of information that I draw from on a daily basis. And I look forward to having you back on this podcast when we're going to be covering all different types of topics uh, from trial skills to running law firms, all of which you can help discuss with me in bringing your insights. So thanks again for uh, joining us here on this episode of The Mentor ESQ. And I hope you'll be back to join us for many more. As they say, to be continued. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Mentor ESQ. I hope you all enjoyed it, enjoyed hearing from my mentor, Guy Smiley. I'd extremely appreciate it if you give us a review and rating, and if you'd share this podcast with your friends, colleagues, and classmates. I'm Andrew Smiley, and this is The Mentor ESQ.